0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and a happy President's Day holiday to all. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, how Huntington Ingalls Industries plans to grow its reach across the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance market. But first, joining me is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Great to be back, Fargo. Uh, Indeed, uh, great to have you back on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And I would also point out that HII sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent conference and trade show. Uh, Byron, uh, great notes uh, over the weekend, among them a very uh, thought-provoking one about lessons uh, from the past and indeed uh, the present as we're seeing Russia uh, mass uh, now uh, more than 190,000 of its troops in and around Ukraine. All the provocations, as we expected, uh, are uh, playing out cyber attacks first, uh, contrived incidents uh, in the east of the country, the Duma recognizing Donetsk uh, and uh, Luhansk. um, right? So the moves are in play. Um, You've been joining us regularly to talk uh, a little bit about the lessons and what you see as as being interesting. You did some interesting analysis on the duration of land wars. uh, And you also highlighted an excellent piece by Mark Kansian of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, that ran on February 15 in, uh, on the Breaking Defense website about the utility of platforms like tanks, uh, attack helicopters, cyber, and, and artillery. Walk us through you know, what, how you're thinking approaching this and what your research is telling you uh, or history tells us about not just what to expect, but how this should change how we think about the future.
1: Yeah, well, I think, and I, I'll just start out today. Vago on Monday, President's Day, it is a market holiday in the United States, but you really are seeing uh, some pretty sharp reactions to events in European markets. Uh, the the Russian IMOEX, that's uh, kind of their stock market index, that's down at almost eleven percent. The the Polish uh, Warsaw stock market, that's down around three percent. Um, credit default swaps on Russian sovereign debt are just blowing out. Uh, they're over, the last time I looked, 320, 350. I mean, that's a new record. People buy that when they, they think there's going to be risk of a default <clears throat> on debt. So, um, you know, the market's kind of going back and forth and, oh, we're going to have a negotiated settlement. You know, is Putin just bluffing and daring? But I, I think we really are kind of at a, <laughs> an extreme tipping point here. Um, and, and markets, I think, are also recognizing, uh, you know, really the the danger
0: in the situation right now. Um, and we did discuss that a little bit on the roundtable uh, yesterday. Of course, the situation uh, has escalated in the last uh, 24 hours, as it looks uh, either more certain that Putin's going to invade or that Putin is doing a terrific messaging campaign, including uh, leaking stuff specifically to U.S. and allied intelligence uh, that actually right, heightens the tension, heightens the danger, uh, whether it's rounding up uh, Ukrainian uh, opposition figures and potentially, you know, uh, shooting them in the event of a, of a of an invasion, right? I mean, that has a tendency of sort of focusing the mind or heightening the terror um, aspect of it. What's, um, how, how should we, you know, at a time when the U.S. is about to issue a whole bunch of strategies that is, you know, and apparently the administration led by Cath Hicks of Susanna Bloom uh, have been taking these deep dives into the weapons portfolio about, where we need to invest more, where we need to invest less. Mark Kansian's piece raises uh, some questions that a lot of us in the community have been debating and discussing for a very long period of time. And then you did the analysis on uh, the length of conflicts and land wars and what they potentially tell us. You know, walk walk us through your thinking on both these axes.
1: Well, let's start with the the land wars, because I think, you know, we're coming off Afghanistan in popular memory. People are thinking probably, too, about Vietnam. You know, those are, you know, 20-year wars, right? Um, But... You know, when you look at these conventional conflicts, uh, they pitch two relatively similarly armed um, combatants against one another uh, or multiple, multiple uh, combatants. You know, the one exception, I suppose, since the 1960s has been the, uh, the Iran-Iraq War. Um, you know, that lasted almost uh, 2,900 days from 1980 to 1988. But a lot of the other wars are really relatively short. Uh, They're short and violent. Um, You know, the Six-Day War uh, that Israel fought against uh, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt in 1967, you know, the the name of that war kind of speaks for itself as far as the length, but even Desert Storm and then Operation Iraqi Freedom, you know, they're kind of a month and a half long each. Um, You've had shorter wars Um, the October war that the Israelis fought against uh, multiple Arab states in 1973 lasted 19 days, Uh, the Indo-Pakistan war in 1971 that basically led to the formation of Bangladesh, uh, that was a 14-day war. So the the point I think here, obviously we don't know the, the full scope of what the Russian objectives will be and how quickly they can accomplish those, but I think you are looking at something, you know, I've used kind of a, a back-end marker as uh, Orthodox Easter, which is April 24th, um, just kind of riffing off the old thing that the troops are going to be home by by Christmas. Um, clearly, that could change depending on how effective the Ukrainian forces are, how effective Russian forces are, and what the, the true and ultimate objectives of, of the Russian forces are. And, and maybe like... Uh, operation Iraqi freedom the intense conventional phase of the war is just the opening round and then you get into a much longer messier drawn out uh, counterinsurgency partisan type activity that uh, that again can make this a very long war for Russia but uh, I just think kind of as a framing metric, you know, you have from a combat standpoint, it's going to be, I think, fairly short and fairly intense. I mean, actually, very intense.
0: Um, now, oh, and and if you're uh, and if you're Russia, right, you want to do that to demonstrate to the world that you can actually use shock and awe as its uh, principal uh, author, uh, Harlan Ullman, intended it, right, to immediately shock and destabilize an adversary uh, for you to be able to. Um, you know, take military advantage of them, uh, and you know, as we heard from Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute on this program uh, several times, right? I mean, Putin is the one who's maintaining escalation dominance here, right? And decision in decision centric warfare, he's really delivering a bit of a master class on it.
1: Right, and and there there is the risk, of course, uh, that the Russian forces don't perform that competently, and maybe that was one of the lessons from the Iraq Iran War. You know, if you recall. Saddam Hussein launched this attack against uh, Iran in the hope that it would collapse the revolution and the Iranian forces would fold pretty quickly. They didn't, Uh, you know, the initial Iraqi airstrikes were frankly, fairly incompetent. Uh, And then then his ground forces got bogged down pretty quickly in the incursions they made into Iran. So it's not to say that something similar couldn't happen although I just think the correlation of forces between Ukraine and Russia, you know, Russia's gonna accomplish air supremacy, you know, in the opening days of this campaign. Uh, the advantage is they have an artillery, armor, um, support systems, I mean, you know, the, the optionality they can create with their amphibious forces, um, you know, uh, the, the type of weapons that the U.S. and, and allies have been providing to the Ukrainians are going to help, but they are not strategic or decisive by any way, shape, or form. Uh,
0: and of course, uh, the R- Russia maintains a lot of long-range uh, precision as well as area denial systems. So that is a real complicating factor uh, 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 for uh, uh, defenders. Uh, let me take you to the question of uh, the $773 billion number that's been reported the administration is likely to ask in 23. And a bit on Mark's work about whether or not right? I mean, we have a tendency of looking, three, two, one, we have a tendency of looking at these sorts of things and say, these are inflection points, uh, whether uh, the uh, Azerbaijan-Armenia uh, war or or what have you, right? There's a tendency of looking at these as like, holy cow, this is a, you know, we're, we should be hitting the reset button and reconsidering some things. And yet we find ourselves not, not able to do that. What do you make of the 773 number? Um, and what do you, W- will any of these lessons and things that Mark is discussing, and all of us have been discussing for a long time, actually get reflected in this budget in terms of the choices? That
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is this is going to be the largest European land war uh, since 1945. I, I suppose you include, uh, you know, the the Warsaw Pact invasion of of Czechoslovakia, although there there really wasn't combat um, in, in that in that particular operation in 1968, but um people are going to be watching this for all sorts of lessons uh you know what does it mean and and i wanted to mention the mark kantian article that you know you mentioned a minute ago he raised some you know i think they're older debates they were debates that were never really resolved but you know what's the future of the main battle tank? you know what happens with attack helicopters how effective will cyber really be in these campaigns um there are a couple others that he called out but you know what i I kind of responded and I think, I think they were all very good points, but they're not new in a funny way. We had a pretty interesting debate about the main battle tank um, you know right after the October War when uh, Soviet supplied anti-tank systems uh, that are infantry operated really mauled some of the initial um, Israeli armored assaults. I think once the Israelis found a cadence, uh, you know that they could suppress, these types of, of um, infantry-armed weapons, you know, they, they eventually prevailed in that campaign and we continue to build main battle tanks. Um, attack helicopters, you know, there, there was an incident during the 2003 war against Iraq where it was a, a raid with Apaches that uh, they ran into some pretty heavy Iraqi ground fire and turned back, the, the, the mission was aborted and arguably, You know, that didn't stimulate the same kind of debate, but, you know, there are going to be, um, I I think you'll see Mark correctly pointing out, we're going to see these debates revisited again, depending on how effective uh, Russian equipment is against Ukrainian uh, forces and vice versa. And, um, And there are probably going to be some new ones that we really haven't thought about either. Amphibious assaults, you know, Dieppe in 1942 failed, Uh, You know, a raid by British and Canadian forces against uh, German occupied Dieppe in France, but that didn't turn everybody off from amphibious operations. On the contrary, you know, (laughs) we kind of learned from that and, and pushed ahead.
0: So... Um, um i, I would uh, point out right in the 73 war you're talking about the sager uh yes. anti-tank uh weapon which was uh, which was for, formidable but again right i mean warfare is uh, if nothing about innovation uh and how you you uh end up uh, being able to deliver uh, capabilities uh but i think his point about the development of a new generation of precise weaponry what does that mean what, to assault a hostile beach i know that we always have a tendency of saying in the marine and marine corps answer to this is we will land where we are unopposed M- and maybe um you know we we ended up landing in a lot of places where we were opposed and the bottom line is there you incur enormous casualties uh, in in doing so um yeah, i think, Vago, you know you never
1: say never on this but i think right now this might be you know, because of the they're, they're militaries going at it that, that are in some ways similarly armed. I mean, the Ukrainian military is, is largely still equipped with former Soviet kit. Um, so, you know, in-laws and javelins, uh, you know, Harris Falcon radios, um, some of the counter uh, battery radar the U.S. has supplied. You know they're minor. Uh, they're minor in, in the in the context of this campaign, I, I think. But um, but I'm not I'm not looking at this conflict as something where we're going to see a um, a sea change in let's say the dominant a, a view that you know main battle tanks are really not going to be worth <laughs> any military uh, procuring. On the, on the contrary, if the Russians use these very effectively. Um, right. It might instill more interest in main battle tank inventories, particularly among some of the European militaries that are, are have carrying a fraction of what they used to in, in main battle tanks. So, um, you know, bottom line, I just think we're going we're to see a lot of, uh, inevitably, you know, this war is going to be very
0: carefully uh, analyzed and there will be consequences. Byron, we've got about two minutes before we uh, run out of time. Uh, Want to talk about uh, industry news, but also quickly uh, the week ahead. One thing you highlighted in your program, as everybody knows, GM Defense is our uh, technology uh, coverage sponsor, and an interesting transaction with General Dynamics. What did you highlight, and what do you find so uh, well, interesting? About the team, deal? Yeah, they,
1: they. You know, it was announced last week that uh, General Motors had joined General Dynamics team for the optionally manned fighting vehicle which is the Army program to replace the Bradley. And I think that's shaping up to be a really interesting uh, competition. And it might stand in contrast to the defense industrial base report that had been issued about uh, kind of competition in the, in the Department of Defense, because it does show, you know, there, there's gonna be pretty robust competition in this particular um, program. The other one that has intrigued me from the start has been the teaming between uh, Oshkosh, which you typically don't think of as a armored vehicle provider, um, but they've teamed with, with uh, Hanwha of Korea and Raphael of, of Israel to, to offer a variant of a south korean armored uh, vehicle called i believe it's redback what what you know there really weren't a lot of details about the um what what specifically gm will be contributing to the uh the general dynamics team but you know you think of what gm knows about vehicle architecture supply chain you know mass production digital engineering uh, all all these kind of things that i think are going to be important for any manufacturer going forward. I, I just think it's a really interesting combination. And um, it, it really, again, kind of points to, I think, you know, probably something that more and more defense contractors want to be thinking about as they proceed ahead with their, uh, their you know, competitions, their plans, their, their ability to better position in, in future defense markets.
0: And we've got a short amount of time left. What are the most interesting things our audience should be looking at in terms of the week ahead?
1: So, Vago, I, I think this week, you know, there are already a number of events that have been scheduled to discuss uh, the Russo-Ukrainian crisis. Uh, Chatham House is doing something on Tuesday. Uh, I believe um, Atlanta Council has one or two events as well. And I'm sure they're going to be other pop-up events just the way this whole thing is trending Um, The Royal United Services is is doing their annual Missile Defense Conference in London on the 23rd and 24th. I believe that's being streamed. And um, US Army Secretary Wormuth is speaking at the Atlantic Council uh, on the afternoon of the 24th of February. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if she has anything more to say about the FY23 budget, how Army programs are faring, and even how the Army is thinking about what this really, what could be a very dramatic change in the European security environment needs for the outlook for not just the Army, but uh, the rest of the U.S. military and land forces in general.
0: Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on, and we need to have you on for a longer conversation, and we'll save that for next week. Thanks very much. Thanks, Faga. And joining us now is Doug Jankovic, the Vice President for Growth and Strategy at Huntington Ingalls Industries, a new intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance uh, business group. Doug, thanks so very much for joining us.
2: I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me this morning.
0: Absolutely. A, a pleasure. Uh, you're a, a reserve uh, United States uh, Air Force uh, officer. And yet you find yourself at the uh, last week you were at the West uh, Conference uh, in uh, sunny San Diego. Uh, obviously, one of the premier venues for the United States Navy on on the on the West Coast. Um, the Huntington Ingalls Industries has invested a lot of money. Obviously, we've talked a lot, including with your uh, CEO, uh, or I should say, former, uh, soon to be former CEO, uh, Mike Petters, about the Allian, uh transaction, as well as Kongsberg and all the other deals that brought together all of these intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance components. Uh, and, and obviously, HII has been expanding its technical services business uh, with uh, a, a flagship billion-dollar U.S. Air Force contract. Talk to us a little bit about some of the conversations, Doug, you are having with the Navy customer uh, in terms of the capabilities and how folks should be thinking a little bit differently from Huntington Ingalls, uh, the shipbuilder, which is, is still right the, the, the flagship example that folks have in their head when they think about the company.
2: Yeah, Vaga. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so you're 100 percent right, right? So, uh, so yes, we've been here at, at West, uh, you know, last week, and we've been, you know, certainly talking to a lot of the Navy customers about ISR capabilities and data, and what do you do with data, right? And how do you get it to the lowest possible person to make you know decisions um, quicker, faster, with more um, accurate data sources, right? So it's all about harnessing the power of data to deliver you know actionable intelligence across the globe, right? How do you make it better and? faster Faster, right? Um, we've been talking about natural language processing and AI enabled sensors to create system level architectures, right? Um, new parts of the world that we're starting to focus on. Language is very, uh, very, very important, and we're trying to exploit um, public domains of data that are out there, not just you know, classified data streams. Um, we've also become a very big one-stop uh, shop for fully tailored ISR solutions right? to, to include people doing the imagery analyst to providing aircraft and sensor packages on these type of things. We truly do bring best-of-breed approach whenever a customer needs a solution set. That's one of our you know, key strengths.
0: You know, one of one of the things you said was interesting was uh, some of the language processing capability. And obviously, uh, right, growing a Mandarin speaker, for example, or a Russian language speaker. And, and one of the challenges we found in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, was the difficulty in bringing these kind of skill sets, uh, you know, b- developing the skill set because it takes so long to train folks. Talk to us about some of the capabilities you're bringing that are unique and differentiated from what other people in the marketplace are doing, because there are a lot of guys who are in this space uh, and a lot of folks will say like, hey, well, what do these guys, you know, uh, know uh, compared with what uh, some folks would see as sort of heritage players?
2: Yeah. So it's really about speed to business. Right. So um, how do you ingest all of these thousands of pieces of public data streams? How do you understand slang versus technical jargon? How do you understand sentiment? How do certain sentences read to a reader versus how they're typed, right? So the understanding of that, and we've been very aggressive with creating um, software algorithms that take in all of these separate data streams, and really you can take that data and correlate it and fuse it to really understand what's being said and um, where those things are happening around the world, right? Where where key certain words are being spoken the most and what, what kind of sentiment is being spoken or, or, or implied around the world. Um, that's what we're doing today. That's what we're le- leading forward in. And really it's, it's the ability to rapidly integrate new language, sex, uh, assets, right. Um, you know, instead of growing a person to speak Mandarin or one of the hundreds of dialects, we'll just use a Pacific as an example, right, hundreds of dialects out there, maybe even thousands, um, we can do that with software very, very quickly in a matter of months versus, you know, growing someone that takes years. So, so that's the differentiator that we're really trying to bring to market is really speed and accuracy.
0: Um, let me take you to the platform side of things right um, there through the Remus transaction you, uh, you guys, um, uh, excuse me, through the Kongsberg transaction you guys acquired uh, the Remus which um, is one of the most successful underwater uh, vehicles. Um, what are some of the products you're displaying right because you have the Remus 300 now you also have the Minotaur you guys highlighted a lot of stuff last week at West what were what were some of the hardware elements, and then how are you linking those hardware elements right to the data piece of it that you just discussed?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, right? So yes, we had multiple things on display out there at West, obviously big, beautiful ships with, with airplanes, you know, carriers and destroyers, et cetera. So, so that was the show piece of our you know, booth uh, last week. But also as important is, is are, are these enabled technologies that we're bringing and, and wanting to show, right? So the Remus 300 is, is one of them, right? this, you know, UUV capability. Um, and, and we've been doing some trials with it. We've had some success with it. Um, and we have multiple variants of it, right? So the 300 is just one model. We have, you know, extra large, large, we have multiple sizes depending on the payload required and the mission set needed. Um, so, you know, the goal is to really expand the integration of key enabling technologies onto these uh, vehicles and really exploit the capability into the battle space. Um, that is one, you know, one part of our, our, our booth. Uh, the other part that we talked about was our um, RF multi-function capability, right? So this is a, a system that we have that ingests and absorbs the RF spectrum in a given area, right? So I can be out in the field, I can be absorbing the ones and zeros being transmitted and really understand who's out there in that environment. Um, we can use it as a decoy system where it can emulate other emitters um, as a way to a decoy. Um, capabilities um, it can also provide electronic warfare um, capabilities as well so it's a very very powerful system everything from man portable to vehicle multi-domain application right? so it covers a very broad range of of of, of application sets um, you, you mentioned minotaur so you know uh, obviously one of our show pieces that came over with the alliance um, acquisition you know, six months ago or so, you know, Minotaur, multi-domain application, right? So it's, it's the Minotaur Mission Management System, command and control, right? Currently today, it takes over 15 separate data streams. And by that, I mean, sensor type of data that can take RF, acoustic, EOIR, national data feeds into it and really correlate it onto a single screen to where you can really understand what's going on. It fuses all those data streams together, correlates. And associates what is happening on that data, and, and how that looks to a end user. Um, you're able to filter the data, right? so you're able to see if I just want to look in a RF spectrum alone, you can you know disable the other sensors or or, or remove that view, right? So so it's highly adaptable. Um, it can be standalone or complementary, right? So you can have it as a very tactical edge capability, or you could have it built as part of a much longer. Um, ISR surveillance type of capability. Really, at the end of the day, is it's really about accelerating decision and, and and decision making at the tactical edge, right? As a military guy myself, right, getting that getting that decision making to the lowest echelon of of the fight is the most um, is. Is the most effective. So that's where we want that to be versus it being, you know, maybe hundreds or even thousands of miles away. So getting accurate, highly reliable, trustworthy data that people can make decisions on, that is what
1: we're all about.
0: Um, let me ask how your business uh, strategies are then syncing with uh, what the Navy's planning is uh, or plans are, uh, I should say, right? Um, Obviously the joint all domain command and control system is uh, sort of a centerpiece for the United States military. Uh, The Navy kind of made it definitively clear that they're part of the program, but they're sort of not part of the program, that they're going to do what the service is gonna do uh, or execute its plan under the project uh, overmatch. Uh, model uh, uh, as to the chief of naval operator, the CNO's blueprint, Admiral Gilday's blueprint uh, that uh, Rear Admiral Smalls uh, obviously uh, has has been the co-author of. What, what does this tell us about what this joint all-domain command and control future is going to be as each of the services, right? I mean, the Air Force, uh, your your service, you're an Air Force reservist, um, and, and the Army are working much more closely than the Navy. Talk to us about how you know where you see the opportunity. How do you on ramp on this? What are the potential challenges, right? Because this is something you know we our sponsor L three Harris is very interested in. This also they sponsor our uh, JADC2 coverage. Um, you know how how do you see this evolving ultimately, especially in the wake of 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 the West Conf- Conference, where uh, Navy leadership did sort of frame what it is and how it is they want to get to where the Joint Force wants to be in a couple of years.
2: Yeah, so, that, so that, that's a great point, right? Uh-huh. And, and a great question to ask. So I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all about o- open data and open standards. Um, you know, this isn't a, a new problem. We've been having this problem when it comes to you know, data links and information and sharing across services, even across platforms. That's always been a challenge. Um, and, and finding how do you bring all of it together under a seamless overarching architecture? We've always been struggling with that, making strides. Um, I think the, 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 the technology is out advancing the merging of the technology, which is probably the normal architecture for, for, for business. Um, but I think it's going to take a change in, in, in proprietary data, you know, streams and sources, right? Open standards, there have to be the open standard of how this all comes together. Um, we are a merger and a fuser of the data. We don't make the data. We aren't making you know, radios. We don't, ma- you know, we don't make sensors, if you will. And I, by that, I mean, in terms of high altitude, airplane, bolt-on, EOIR, pods and sensors. That's not what we do. We are a, a integrator of the data and a disseminator of the data. Um, so getting all those data streams to be talking on the same way is incredibly vitally important, just even within respective services let alone the challenge of bringing all the services under the same standard, right? So it, it's a very right. difficult problem. Um, and we're trying to stay a lot lock, lockstep with, with, with all the services, right? It's not just, a, it's not just a, a naval one that we're interested in, right? The Air Force has ABMS, Army has convergence. We, we are maintaining awareness of, of all of those, um, but the requirements are, are still soft. I don't think anyone's really locked in a hard set of requirements as to this is what we will be doing. I think we're still in the ingest of, of what's the art of the possible, Um, And we are absolutely tracking that from the most senior levels of the Defense Department all the way down to the the user level of understanding how do we make this better and, and more effective across the board.
0: Um, we've, we've got about two minutes left, and I've got two questions for you. Um, is, uh, you know, the, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the Jake, uh, is the one responsible for sort of creating a common data baseline? Are we making progress uh, from your standpoint and at least standardizing these data streams? Because ultimately, right, the Defense Department is awash in data. A lot of it is totally unusable, right? So we're trying to get to a point where the data can be, you know, it it's it's funny and it's not funny at the same time, right? Uh, I mean, some of this data is is, is in paper form and warehouses that if we could tap would be terrific. But then sure. some of the data that we have is 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 really, you know, in, in in little drips and drabs. Are we making the kind of progress we need to be making in order to be able to access this data?
2: Well, it's never fast enough, right? Let's be fair. Um, you know, uh, it, it's it's never fast enough. The data is never accurate enough. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking that from a warfighter perspective, right? I always wish I had it sooner and I wish I had it better. Um, so is, is it fast enough? Oh, is it getting better? The answer is yes, it is getting better. Um, there's always room for improvement and we are standing behind and adjacent to everyone in, in, in industry as
0: well as the DOD to help make that happen. Let me ask you uh, one last question, and that is on the integration of a Um, uh, I, sh- I should point out that you came to Huntington Ingalls uh, through the transaction, although you have experience also at Mantec, which is a, a leading edge uh, a cyber uh, and technical uh, firm. Two different cultures. One is a precision engineering culture. The other one uh, you could say is a, is a precision technical services uh, uh, a company. How is the integration going at a deck plate uh, level to create... Uh, a, a new cu- culture and a new seamless capability, ultimately, because that's where uh, pretty much almost every, you know, what differentiates a successful merger or acquisition from one that's not.
2: Yeah, so it's been you know accepted across the company from you know mr. Petter's office all the way down to the you know newest employee right so the merge is still happening let's be fair um, you know came over at the end of August and uh, we are we're, we're still integrating things um, but I'll tell you it's been really exciting um, we have support and I'll, I'll speak from the alliance perspective of coming into a much bigger company with the horsepower it provides the resourcing that provides that's been a a, a welcomed um, change because we—it's not that we didn't have it before, but now I have it—you um, know—much, much bigger, right? I have a multi-billion-dollar company as, as as our you know new parent, so that's afforded us opportunities to really stretch and reach into places that we may not have gone. The access points that a world leader in shipbuilding is able to open doors and accelerate. Um, technology technologies and entry points has, has been fantastic. And, and that's what we're looking to continue that accelerated growth. Uh, we are stopping. And we have you know, great goals ahead of us. And that's what we're aiming for.
0: Doug, thanks very much for everyone's following seas. Uh, as they would say in the in the wake of a naval conference, I figure I can say that. Um, thanks very much and looking forward to having you on again uh, in the future. Thanks so much.
2: I appreciate your time. Thanks so much.